I like curling. You know, the thing with the rocks and the sheets of ice, not the hair curling, because I don't have any use for that, but, but curling. And I like it, I think, because it's kind of Scottish-Canadian, right? So it appeals to my heritage. And, and I understand the concept of curling. I mean, I've watched it. I've watched a fair number of bond spiels, you know? And, uh, and we've even enrolled our girls in Nelson in curling clubs and got to watch them. But you would not want me on your curling team. You know why? Because I'm terrible at it, honestly. And the reason I'm terrible at it is because even though I understand the concept and I've watched a lot of it and I've had firsthand experience of it, I've never practiced. And the reality is you need to practice in order to become proficient. It's like the old 4-H club motto, we learn to do by doing. <laughs> when our girls were in the 4-H club, we learn to do by doing. Well, the same is true when we come to James. This is his big point and the big takeaway that I want us to understand. We have lots to learn, but it's not just about gaining more knowledge. That's kind of useless in the life of James and in what he's saying to us. It's not about getting more knowledge or, or piling up information. It's about putting that knowledge into practice. It's no good to us unless we apply it, unless we try to live it out. And so James is looking for a faith that works, a faith that actually has some reality to it. So as we've gone through the chapters of James, we've really just taken one concept out of each chapter as we've been going along. There's lots of other truth in there, but we've understood that James isn't so much interested in the theory of suffering. He's more interested in seeing us rejoice while we face all kinds of troubles. See the difference? James isn't so much interested in the concept of temptation and having lots of debates and dialogue about where that comes from. He's much more interested in seeing us resist the devil and resist temptation. It's an action. He's not so much interested in debating the notion of equality and getting into all that, but he wants us to refuse to play favorites when we see people coming into the congregation. Right? He's not so much interested in all of our opinions on free speech, but he is interested in seeing us reign in our tongue. And he's not so much interested in the philosophy of conflict, but he wants us to regard ourselves with humility so that conflict cease. Do you see the difference? I think so often we get caught up in all kinds of debates and arguments and concepts and philosophies we can talk to the cows come home, as the farmers say, I guess. Uh, but James wants to see faith in real time, the reality of faith. And so we come to the end of this letter that Katiuska read for us, and there's so much here. There's so much we could get into, so much that we could say. We probably should have another Wednesday night just to unpack all of this, but I'm going to leave it up to you to get into some of those deeper things. What we want to see here, though, is this concept of the life of faith means that we need to take action. 
Those are all action words that were read for us today. If you're in trouble, you should do something about it. What should you do? Pray. If you're happy, you should do something about that too. What should you do? Sing, <laughs> right? James, James never leaves it with just the feeling that you have. Do something with it. If you're sick, what should you do? Call the elders of the church. If you've messed up, what should you do? Confess it to one another. Take action. Don't wait for someone else to come and bandage up your wounds. Don't wait for someone else to come and relieve your troubles. Take action. That's what James is looking for. We show our faith by the actions that we take. That's what James is all about. And that's what he's seeing here. So as we come to this section, there's lots of things going on about uh, praying for sick and is there guaranteed healing and can we pray and make the clouds move, all this kind of stuff. Um, I'm going to leave that with you. I want to get to kind of the heart of the matter a little bit. And I think there's two underlying assumptions that James has in this section. And in fact, it's two underlying assumptions that are key to understand the whole book and begin to apply it. The first underlying assumption is this, community. That's the underlying assumption that James has all throughout this. James assumes that the individual believer in Jesus will be part of a community of the faithful under the authority of a group of elders. He's assuming that. He's assuming that the only way that this works, this whole thing about reigning in your tongue and, and being humble with one another and submitting to one another and to God, it only works if there's a community of believers that are working at this together. So James assumes that the individual believer in Jesus will be part of the community of the faithful. Those action words like pray and sing and call and confess, even in the Greek, they're public words. I think too often we, we like to think that religion is kind of a private affair, that we keep quiet, that we do in our own time. But James says, no, this is a public reality that we're meant to do together. In fact, so much of the Bible and the New Testament has to do with what we do together more so than what we do individually. I know there's a whole movement that came out of the pietistic movement, uh, even in the 17th, 18th centuries, which really focused on our personal, private, quiet time. And that's important. It's good to have a personal, private, quiet time. But more often than not in the New Testament, when it talks about faith, it assumes community. It assumes that we're doing life together. That's been difficult for us, hasn't it? The last couple of years. How do you do life together when you're supposed to stay apart? And yet we've stumbled and struggled and tried and God's been gracious and good. And somehow the gospel is still going out and the church is still alive and active. And I think we're entering into a time when we'll be able to see the reality of doing life together again in real time. James encourages that. He says that's the only way to understand these things. John Wesley, as some of you will know the name, he was kind of the founder of the Methodist movement. And he said this, it was actually a man that said this to him. The New Testament knows nothing of the solitary Christian, just the lone ranger Christian. The New Testament knows nothing of it. We're meant to live life together. But our problem, I think, is that our concept of Christian community is too theoretical. 
It's too much in our own mind. It's too much based on our own set of expectations. And the problem is, when we come and actually experience the mess of Christian community, it doesn't match our glorious expectations for what the church should be like, and we become disappointed, discouraged. We actually sometimes just leave in search of the perfect church. I remember there's a, when I was growing up, there's a family came to our little brethren assembly. Uh, we were in West Bank, BC, and, and he came in and he had a whack of kids. I can't even remember how many, but it filled up a couple of pews, it seemed. And as he came in afterwards, one of the elders approached him and said, you know, is, are you considering being here? Do you think this is some uh, place that you can be in community with other believers? And I remember hearing the guy, as he looked around, he said, I think I'll fit in here. It looks like a bunch of sinners saved by grace. And he stayed. That's the truth, though, isn't it? I, I mean, we sometimes have to set our glorious expectations aside and just be in the smelly mess that sometimes is the life of faith in Christian community. It's not always easy. We don't get to pick and choose who we're with in this church. I mean, that would be the opposite of what James is saying to us. And so in that difficulty, James says, that's where faith needs to be real. That's where we need to live out our faith. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who's been actually coming up uh, in conversations a lot more, especially since this conflict in Ukraine. So it's been fascinating to watch that. But he said this, the person who loves their dream of community will destroy community. But the person who loves those around them will create community. I love that. So don't be too in love with our dreams of community. Now, are we dreaming about the perfect church? Am I dreaming about the perfect sanctuary when it's finally done? Are we dreaming about the optimal opportunities to meet our personal needs and the needs of our families? Are we dreaming about all of those kind of ideal settings that we expect when we come to worship? Or are we actively participating in the glorious mess that is Christian community? Because we're all human. That's the challenge that I think that James brings to us. The wisdom of James assumes community participation. That's the only way all these things work. Praying, confessing, calling for the elders, all of that. So that's the first assumption I think is underlying this passage and all of James' impact. The second assumption is this. Continuity. Continuity. James assumes that the God of Elijah is the same God we worship today. That's why he brings that up. There's this great continuity for James. There's not a break. So often we see a break in our Bible and we just assume this great break between the Old Testament and the New Testament. James doesn't see that. He sees this great continuity of faith starting from the beginning of time till now. And we're part of that. And until we really see ourselves as part of this continuous um, call of God of people to set themselves apart and follow after him, then we're going to miss out on the great continuity that is faith. Uh, James is a very Jewish book, has a very Jewish outlook and understanding. And we see that in the reference to the law that comes all throughout the book. We see it in this passage in the connection between sickness and sin. That's something we probably have to unpack a little bit more. But we see it also in this reference to the prayer of faith of Elijah. It reminds us of that passage in Hebrews, the great um, chapter on faith that talks about the great cloud of witnesses. James is saying, here's a witness that we can draw on today. 
I read this on a, a Facebook post and thought it was funny, so I'll share it with you. Um, it said this, Daniel slept in the lion's den. Peter slept in prison. Jesus slept in a storm. So no matter what your circumstances, you can always take a nap. There's other lessons to be learned from that, though. <laughs> we have this great cloud of witnesses. These, these aren't just stories of faith from the past to entertain us. They're not just told around campfires to keep us occupied at night. These are witnesses, testimonies, to the goodness, faithfulness, and grace of God in very difficult circumstances. Elijah was in a difficult place. He was a human being, just like you and me. He prayed, and look what happened, James says. So pray. Pray with faith, because Elijah prayed with faith. So how is it possible that our prayers might be answered? I don't know what prayer you're praying right now. A prayer for your children, a prayer for your spouse, a prayer for the world, prayer for Ukraine, a prayer for this church. And you think, how on earth can it be answered? Well, it's not going to be answered because of your superior spirituality. It's just not. But it will be answered because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's what James is saying. That all of this hinges, all of these realities, all of this wisdom hinges on the fact that God is the same, this great continuity of faith. So we worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? We worship the God of Ruth and Esther and Rachel and Rahab. And we worship the God of Elijah. And James wants us to remember that. James is not a theoretical book. He says this is the testimony of the actions of the faithful. So there's two great things that uh, are assumptions that James has in this passage and beyond. The community of faith that we need to participate in and this continuity that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if I was to pick one verse to sum all of this up from James, what's the heart of the message? I would pick James chapter 1, verse 22. It says this, But don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourselves. That's the challenge of James. I came across um, a blog post, and I liked it so much, what he was saying, that I actually copied it and then totally forgot to copy the author's name down. So these are not my words. They're far more brilliant, but I would like to read them to you because they struck a chord with me and were a really deep challenge. This is what this one blogger says. James is guarding the church from self-deception. His words guard us from patting ourselves on the back for having our theological ducks in a row without ever doing what God says. We cannot say that God is generous and never give our money. We cannot say that God is love and never lay down our lives for each other. We cannot champion grace and still look down on others. We cannot hear that people are totally depraved and going to hell and not do something to help them hear the gospel. We can't come Sunday after Sunday. We can't go to this or that Bible study. We can't attend this or that Bible conference. We can't read the Gospel Coalition blog and attend seminary classes and download sermons for the drive to work just to come away saying, yeah, that's what I believe. Or I could probably have said it better than he did. We must be doers of the word, not just willing to do the word, but actual doers. If doing the word is absent, 
we must test whether faith in Christ is absent as well. That's the challenge of James. That's the challenge. It's where the rubber meets the road. I'll just end with this little story about Mark Twain. Um, Apparently, there's a Boston businessman came to Mark Twain, and he had great aspirations of what he was going to do with his business, but also with his life. And so he says to Mark Twain, before I die, I'm going to make a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. I'm going to climb to the mount of, uh, top of Mount Sinai, and I am going to read the Ten Commandments aloud. I don't know why that was his goal, but he figured that would be the great goal. Climb Mount Sinai, read the Ten Commandments aloud, and Mark Twain said this, I have a better idea. Why don't you just stay in Boston and keep them? Right? That's the message of James. Let's pray together. Father, we recognize that on one hand, in, a, in reality, we can't keep all your commandments. That's why Jesus came. And, and yet you gave us this one great commandment, to love one another. Father, help us to keep that. Help us to love one another just as you have loved us and gave your Son for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.